get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. Listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbons, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, uh, it's, it's good to be with you. I've been thinking this week, as I have in other weeks, you know, we try and tell people uh, that you can't understand the news without understanding the role faith plays in it. And this week was certainly one of those weeks. Uh, I, I, how are you, how are you doing after, uh, after, uh, <laughs> so much, uh, craziness, so much history. It, it was really an interesting week. Yeah, it was a great week for us in regard to having a lot to talk about. Uh, so I'm, I'm ready to get into this conversation. As you mentioned, faith played a huge role in many of the conversations that we're going to have today for better and for worse. And so let's get to it. Yeah. I think before we get to some of the, uh, some of those issues, I think we have to lead off with, you, you know, real history that took place in, uh, between South and North Korea this week. Uh, Kim Jong-un crossed the border. We saw a handshake that is, you know, potentially, you know, the most significant handshake, uh, in, uh, in, foreign policy history since uh, the Camp David Accords and, and Clinton brokering uh, brokering uh, the handshake between uh, between Israel and Palestine's, uh, the Palestinian Authority's leaders. Uh, and, you know, you read the quotes coming out of this, this meeting where you have South Koreans saying denuclearization is definitely possible. Uh, the South, South Korea's leader suggested that President Trump should be given the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, crediting, uh, saying that uh, Trump deserves big credit um, uh, and saying that North Korea coming to the talks may have come from U.S.-led sanctions and pressure. And so, you know, there was so much, again, last week was so interesting, the contrast that was happening between uh, some of the other news we'll talk about later that maybe wasn't the most uh, significant. Um, and then, you know, earth shattering foreign policy news that, you know, just a year ago, six months ago, uh, people would have said, you know, wasn't possible. So uh, how have you been processing this news? And of course, we understand that, and we'll talk a, a bit about you know, there's a long road. North Korea is not really a a trustworthy actor, um, but uh, it, it was it was pretty amazing to see these shots. Yeah, this was a historic moment. Uh, just how historic it was is is remain remains to be seen. Uh, we saw photos of the North Korean leader Kim and the South Korean leader Moon uh, hugging, kissing, and skipping down the road with uh, uh, hand in hand. Uh, which is odd uh, for representatives of two countries that have been embattled for decades. But as we understand it, their conversation went really well. They had an agreement. Part of that agreement, there are a few things that came along with that agreement. Number one, uh, they agreed to remove all nuclear weapons from the Korean Peninsula. That's a huge deal. Um, uh, they agreed to officially end the Korean War, which started in 1950. Uh, and also to resume reunions of families separated by the conflict. Now, if all those things happen, this is a truly historic moment. And everyone that was involved in making it happen deserves a lot of credit because uh, many of times uh, folks have failed to get this done. Uh, now, no details were fleshed out. And so that's what everyone is talking about, that this sounds good. And we like the uh, the agreement in, in principle. But we want to make sure that it's actually fle fleshed out to be something substantive. And a lot of people are skeptical uh, because it's it's really completely out of the character of Kim Jong-un. Uh, as you mentioned, he is not known for his cooperation. Uh, he's not known for his honesty and he's not known for keeping promises. And so some people are worried that this was just somewhat of a publicity stunt and um, and that North Korea actually won't follow up on what they said they were going to do. Uh, some someone else brought up the fact that this wasn't televised. And uh, we know that Kim likes to kind of show off the things that he does. And so 
people are wondering is maybe he didn't televise it because he's not actually showing his people what's going on. So there's a lot of questions yet to be answered. National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, was on the Sunday shows and he was saying that the Trump administration was hopeful, but that they're not naive, that they don't have enough information to be sure that Kim will actually give up his nukes. Um, but they do think that he is responding to some of the economic pressures and other pressures that have been placed on him from the United States and others. Uh, but he went on to say that de- denuclearization will be a condition for any U.S. concession. So as we come to the table, that's going to be something that we're demanding and they want to see real results and real evidence that that's actually going to a- actually going to happen. So we'll see what happens at this this meeting that we've been talking about between Kim and and Trump. Uh, they haven't announced the site of that yet. But I think the big question when it comes to this this subject is, is Kim actually going to denuclearize? And what's the definition of that for him? Right, right, uh, right. What protection is he going to try to keep uh, for the sake of the Korean people and the global community as a whole? I pray that this is real and we'll just have to see. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks like that in-person uh, summit between between Trump uh, Trump and, uh, uh, and and Kim could could it be in the next three to four weeks and so you know there's been a um, you know from a, from a political standpoint my initial reaction was especially given all the craziness that happened last week you know why isn't the Trump White House uh, uh, really uh, claiming more credit for this just from a political standpoint. Um, but I actually think it's, you know, again, I think last week we were talking about their discipline regarding Syria. Um, you know, this week, I think um, th- there's a level of message discipline on the national security side to uh, let this play out, to not claim credit for anything that hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, and, and you, you know, again, I, I think there's I think we're seeing that. Uh, maybe John Kelly has a bit more influence when it comes to foreign policy uh, and, and how things are communicated there. But it's just very interesting to see. And uh, as he said, Justin, we'll, we'll continue to to pray for uh, uh, pray for these meetings because it would be uh, significant for uh, South Koreans would be significant for the North Koreans and, and obviously the whole the whole region. Yeah, so we'll be watching closely, uh, but I would say in agreement with you that the the Bolton kind of cautious, cautiously optimistic posture is probably the best one for right now. Yeah. Well, uh, let's um, let's take a very quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the first bit of religious news, and that is uh, the firing of uh, the House chaplain Pat Conroy. We'll be back after the break. I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person that I actually at least pretend to give a damn about. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult, related questions that are begging to be answered. Two grown men picked him up, a 15-year-old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look, they look to us. Right? They say, you fucking niggers, this is what happens to you. God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters. I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, last week, uh, Speaker Ryan, uh, it was announced that he had uh, fired uh, House Chaplain Pat Conroy, who was beloved by at least some of, uh, some of both Republican and Democratic members uh, of the House, uh, which kicked off, you know, a pretty fascinating, uh, on a number of different levels, a pretty fascinating a uh, series of events and, and conversations. Uh, a, a rumor was floated out that hasn't been really v- verified. Speaker Ryan contested uh, himself, but a rumor floated out that 
this was sort of uh, retaliation for uh, the House chaplain's uh, opening prayers becoming more and more political. So on November 6th, uh, right on the brink of uh, the big tax reform package, he prayed, may their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. Uh, and, and so some were pointing to that as, uh, and others like it as the reason why Speaker uh, Ryan let go of Pat Conroy, that his prayers were getting too, uh, uh, too political. Uh, others, including uh, Mark Walker from North Carolina, suggested it was because uh the the chaplain had no personal uh had no family experience uh of course as a as a catholic priest um uh, who who's not allowed to uh, to to marry uh many uh catholics took that as a sign that uh that no catholic priest would be acceptable uh to mark walker who's a uh influential uh, uh member of the of the of the republican caucus in the house from a from a religious perspective, uh, and so uh, we had that we had the conversation about religious freedom and whether Catholics could be allowed to serve. We had the question of the mixing of faith uh, and politics from a position like the House chaplain. Uh, it, it was it, it's just been fascinating, and we're still seeing stories on it uh, today as people try and suss out the facts and figure out what's going on here. Uh, but the the last thing I'll say on this is that we've seen uh, Republican members of the House who have sought uh, Father Conroy as uh, for, for counsel, including Walter Jones from North Carolina, who is probably the sweetest, uh, most uh, uh, sweetest man with the most integrity in the House, Democrat or Republican. He's just a wonderful guy. Uh, he was he was pretty upset about this, but. Uh, even more conservative members like Jeff Fortenberry were saying, you know, that, that he had always been helped by Pat Conroy. And, and listeners, you may remember Pat Conroy as uh, the person who led the prayer uh, at second base between Republicans and Democrats after uh, after the, the congressional shooting that took place. And so uh, th that really put Pat Conroy sort of uh, made people aware of him. Uh, Justin. Uh, <laughs> It's been so fascinating to see Democrats dig in here, uh, and given everything that we've seen from the Democrats over the last, you know, I think four or six years and, and, and really just the, the, uh, uh, the, the trend that's been happening in the party over the last several decades. Uh, what, what do you make of, of all this? Do you, uh, do, do you have a problem with the firing of Pat Conroy? It all depends on the motivation, uh, and I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of what the motivation for the firing was. I mean, anytime you have a, a, a retiring House speaker uh, firing a chaplain uh, right before the midterms, it's, it's, it's going to raise some questions. And so I completely understand those questions being raised. This actually uh, the the, re the resignation actually happened, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, or, you know, Conroy announced that he would be stepping down and no one really noticed. So there were there was like a lag in kind of the response. And then you have Dem you have Democrat Representative Joe Crowley, uh, who tried to create a panel to investigate the firing. Uh, that motion was tabled by Republicans, but it brought up this issue and kind of called all these things to question. Again, we have to look at why was he fired? If 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 Paul, if if Paul Ryan fired him because of his prayer, specifically that prayer in regard to the the tax uh, plan, then that's problematic. Uh, that that is a terrible move by uh, Paul Ryan. And I hate that he would be leaving under such uh, a bad decision. Uh, and so I hope that wasn't wasn't the case. He's saying that it uh, the case was otherwise. And, you know, I'm not sure that we will ever know. Someone said that after that specific prayer, uh, Paul Ryan came up to him and said, hey, you need to kind of leave the politics alone. I guess I can understand why he would be upset about that. And maybe at some to some extent, it would be in a, a, inappropriate if the prayers got a lot more uh, political. But for that one prayer, I think this would be a bit much interesting conversation. I hope that wasn't the, the reason for it. But I do want to back up on the, the religious liberty conversation. Um, I can see 
Democrats, to some extent, using this as a political tool themselves. And so if we want to talk about religious liberty, I'm not sure the party where it's at right now is in any position to have credibility in talking about that. You know, that, that's like someone in the Trump administration uh, talking about how many um, immigrants Obama, uh, you know, uh, that Obama sent back. You just don't have any credibility to have that real conversation. There were probably some very real relationships with Conroy, and I think people should stick to that. But to turn this into some kind of religious liberty conversation, it could have been a very bad uh, dismissal or, or suggestion to resign. But I'm not sure the Democratic Party has any room to kind of question the religious side of it or, you know, whether Catholics can do this or that, especially when I'm listening in on these committee hearings and you're hearing these religious tests and all that stuff. So a, a conversation that needs to be had. I understand why the question is raised. I hope the decision wasn't made for uh, based on some of the allegations. But let's 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 hold off and not make this overly political, especially when there's a lot more serious religious liberty issues that we're not addressing properly. Well, right. It, it, it's been uh, it's been really interesting. You're seeing uh, reps like Marcy Captor, Dan Kildee, uh, Joe Crowley, even really digging their heels in here. Uh, what? Folks who have been watching the Hill and the Democratic Caucus for a long time will realize is that, uh, especially in the case of Marcy Captor, these are sort of the last, uh, the the last sort of uh, Catholic Dems standing. <laughs> uh, Marcy Captor is a is a pro life uh, Democrat. There used to be three, four dozen more like her just eight years ago, uh, and so you know, just as a uh, as an observer of this, uh, watching it, uh, you just got a sense that uh, for the first time in years, really, uh, uh, there was an opportunity for, for Democrats who take uh, faith seriously, who have been sick of sort of getting bashed over the head on religious freedom stuff and all other sorts of problems as, a, as their party has moved. Uh, to the left on some of these questions, there was just a sense of release. So, you know, you could read any story on this and the likelihood is going to be that Marcy Captor has been quoted on it because she, she's just been, uh, there haven't been many other political opportunities like this. That, that, that's to speak to the politics. Uh, and I do think the politics of, of, uh, of, of, of playing this up and being quoted in, you know, their hometown, Marcy Captors in Ohio. I think Dan Kildee, I believe, is Michigan. Um, very Catholic areas. The, the, the politics of this is, uh, is, is salient and, and interesting and, and helpful for them. But, but I do, I, I want to agree with you, Justin. And I'd even put, you, you know, if, uh, it's not a real, it, it, it's a different question around, you know, whether, uh, they're going to make a rule that the house chaplain has to be married uh, him or herself. That, that that could be a religious freedom tension, but it's not a religious, it's not necessarily a religious freedom uh, uh, infringement. If, uh, if as the house chaplain, uh, so a nonpartisan role, if, uh, if the, the chaplain's deemed as being too political in opening prayers, the, the chaplain isn't, isn't there to influence public policy debates um, explicitly uh, now. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think that that is, that is probably a, a justifiable reason, uh, justifiable reason for, um, for a firing. But then to that, I'd say, you know, all Pat Conroy said was, May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. And there's kind of an implicit acknowledgement, uh, uh, if, if, uh, you know, if, if people, if Republicans were upset about Conroy saying that, there's kind of an implicit acknowledgement there that their tax reform didn't do that. <laughs> you, you know, it's not, it's not like he said, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we really ought to go with the the Democrats package or we need to give more uh, uh, tax breaks to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> I mean, he, he all he said was we need to make sure that the new tax reform 
uh, that there are not winners and losers and the benefits are balanced and shared by all Americans. Uh, and so that's why it, if you're upset by that, then maybe don't get mad at the chaplain. Maybe <laughs> reconsider your own <laughs> priorities and approach if something like that is such an offense to the, the, the bill you're pushing. Yeah, like they used to say, a, a hit dog hollers, and so maybe he was feeling some type of way about his own, his own bill. <laughs> but but I also say this: I think Democrats who are making hay over this had plenty of opportunities to, to step up on religious liberty conversation within their own party, where where it really would have mattered, and those voices uh, could have were needed at that time. And so stepping up when it's the other, when the other party does something on an isolated incident, dealing with one person who's a chaplain in the house. To me, that's that seems very political. And you're trying to jump on this issue. There was a mistake made by someone saying something about family. And now you want to make it about Catholic. I mean, give me a break. The guy's been here since, what, 2011. Um, and so nobody had a problem with him during that time. But there were plenty of opportunities for Democrats, Catholic or otherwise, to step up and to have real conversations about religious liberty. I haven't seen too many of them doing it. And so I, I will take this seriously when it's done on an issue where they may have some political capital to, to lose, or they're actually questioning the direction that our party is going. Yeah, in. just to be clear, and I'd have to look back, uh, but, but Marcy Kaptur, uh pretty pretty consistently, though not consistently enough for some, but pretty consistently votes for pro-life measures. She was a key voice uh, pushing back against the contraception mandate in HHS. So, so she's not exactly... Uh, her and, and Kildee are not exactly new to this. There, there's just not uh, as many of them uh, anymore. And I think there is a sense uh, th that they uh, <laughs> they have to choose. Uh, they have to choose their battles. I certainly have not seen Marcy Kaptur speak out against, for instance, the uh, the, the the questioning that Amy Barrett received uh, that we discussed on this podcast. So. I hear you. I mean, this is a hundred percent political. I'm not. I'm not pushing back. Uh, uh, not pushing back on that. I, I do think it's it's smart politics for for these for these districts in in a in just a you know, practical practitioner sense, and maybe it will even uh, encourage them to be uh, voices for uh, faith and religious freedom in circumstances when it isn't so politically advantageous to them. Um, with that, we'll take a break. Yeah, no, that's sorry. most partially. No, 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 please. Yeah, yeah. No, and that and that's partially my point. It's not to say that they've never stepped up or never said anything about it. But when I listen to guys like Cory Booker and others who are in these uh in in granted it's the Senate, but they're in these right, hearings right. and they're applying these religious tests, if you're really serious about religious liberty, you would have no choice but to step up and say, Hey, that needs to stop. And from somebody to do that within their own party, even if those two just came together and made a statement or something like that would go a long way. So this seems somewhat opportunistic, not questioning uh, their entire, you know, their um, uh, their honesty on, on every issue. But I think this seems just a little bit opportunistic. So let's head into Absolutely. break. Let's go to break. When we get back, speaking of opportunistic, <laughs> we're going to talk Kanye when we get back. <laughs> this is the Church Politics Podcast. Do you wear funny socks? Most men do. Whether it's at the office or at the bar, your socks are guaranteed to be a conversation starter. Society Socks is a men's sock subscription company that sends two pairs of exclusively designed socks to your door every month. These socks are made of warm, soft, and comfortable blend of combed cotton guaranteed to make you look well-dressed. But why are they called Society Socks? Socks are one of the most needed and least donated clothing items at homeless shelters. Though Society Socks aims to change that. With every pair of socks purchased, another pair of socks is donated to a homeless shelter. Not only will your socks feel and look great, but you will be confident that you are making a positive change. With two surprise pair of socks arriving to your door every month in your subscription, you'll begin to grow your sock collection. Try out our first month of a sock subscription at 50% off when you use the code OFFTHERECORD. Put an end to the boring socks and subscribe today. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast, uh, and th this this case that really captured a lot of attention last week, the case of uh, Alfie Evans, a terminally ill British toddler uh, who really brought up uh, a lot of the 
questions about sort of, uh, end of life care, medical ethics, uh, the influence of religious institutions on sort of state decision making. Uh, Alfie died on Saturday morning, uh, five days after he was taken off life support. Um, for, for those who aren't aware, Alfie was 23 months old, had a rare uh, brain condition that his doctor said was in, incurable. He had been at the Elder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, England for, uh, uh, upwards of 450, 460 uh, days. And so much more than, you know, uh, uh, half of his life. Um, and, uh, the, there was a court ruling, uh, that determined that, uh, he should not, uh, be given life sustaining, uh, care. Uh, and, uh, so there was a, there was a fight to pull him off life support. Uh, the Vatican and Italy got involved. Italy was uh, said that they had a team of doctors on ready to care for Alfie, but uh, but the hospital and the NHS, the National Health Service in in the UK, uh, determined that that they would not let uh, Alfie's parents take him out of the hospital, which raises all kinds of not just policy and ethical questions, but you know strikes at the most personal. Uh, Justin, uh, I, I think this is, this is a, a, a much more complicated case than a lot of the rhetoric we've seen. It's also a very, you know, it's a very, very tender one. We're talking about a, 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 a sweet young life that, that was, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, at the eye, eye of the storm here, you know, in the, in the middle of all of these issues, there was this little boy. Um, how, how, how do you process some of some of this and um and, and uh, do, do you think that uh nhs and and elder hay the hospital do you think that they were they were wrong to uh to prevent uh uh alfie's parents from from taking him to italy i do think the hospital and the and the doctors and the courts in this uh particular instance were wrong uh, as you mentioned, this particular matter pits parental authority versus st state authority in deciding medical treatment for children. Um, basically, where this comes from is that the, the British government in 1989 uh, passed a law called the Children's Act. Uh, well, this said that courts, when deciding of whether someone, a child should be taken off of life support or you know, whether there's, there's parental issues going on, has to have the child's best interest in mind. And what the courts did here was said that we're going to stick with what the, uh, the, the hospital said, uh, because we believe that they have the child's best interest in mind as if the parents didn't have the child's best interest in mind. Now, something I think we need to keep in mind here is that, yes, he had a terminal disease. Uh, we've heard of instances where people had terminal diseases and were actually cured, right? I think in the West, we have a tendency more and more to treat our doctors as some type of philosopher kings, as if because you have a doctorate and there are some great doctors who do great work. So I'm not taking anything away from that. But doctors, medical doctors don't get to decide everything about life when it starts, yeah, when yeah, it yeah. ends. I'm not sure that they're, they're qualified to do that in all cases. However, in the West, we have given them that sort of authority. And I think that's a big mistake. I truly believe that when it comes to when a kid should be taken off of life support, when they should be taken off of ventilation, that is a question to be answered by the parents, uh, not the state. Uh, I do not think the state is um, the proper authority. I don't think I think they, that they have some other considerations that the parents might not have. Uh, that would put them in a situation to where they would be a lot quicker to pull the cord on someone than a family would be. And at the end of the day, it's the family that has to deal with the results of that. They have to deal with the loss. It is not the state. And so I question anyone who thinks the state is in a good position to make those kind of decisions. This was the wrong decision. I have no idea. And, and maybe someone can explain it to me. 
how it is in the best interest of that child not to let the father take the child home, not to let the father and the, the parents take the child over to Italy or, or Munich and the other places that they were that they were looking at. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the idea was that almost to let the child die with dignity or whatever. And there may some be been some other th- things that were at play, but to not let parents take a child home. I, I hope we don't see that as normal. I hope we don't see that as acceptable because that brings up a whole lot of other questions that we have to deal with as a society. And so I think Western society is failing on issues like this. Um, and here's something else I think it's important to bring up. This can be considered a very progressive way of dealing with this type of issue, whether it be parental authority, whether it be, you know, when someone uh, should be allowed to die or when somebody should be taken off of life support. And so I want all those people out there who think that something being called progressive or something being progressive is good. I want you to start thinking a little harder about that and understand that um, once we progress past things like parental rights, we may just be going in the wrong direction and that we need to think a little harder than just the title or the uh, the kind of uh, phil- philosophical thought where, where a certain um, uh, decision comes from, because I think this is a bad decision. And I think this is where progressivism in the in Western society, especially, is really leading us in the wrong direction. And I think it's important for young people, especially Zennials, millennials, to start thinking a little bit uh, uh, more thoroughly about that issue and where we want to go with this and what it means to families who the life of their child is taken out of their hands. The time that they spend with that child is taken out of their hands. Who do we want to be and what should be the root of those type of type of decisions? I would say it should be the Bible. I would say it should be some some more traditional norms, but we all have to answer that yeah, at some point. I think your your language there was really, really careful and good. And your warnings, your cautions were were appropriate. I think we've seen. Uh, We've seen a lot of heated rhetoric around sort of referring to this as state directed murder and uh, sort of all all of these uh, uh, sort of, I think, claims that mischaracterize the situation uh, a a bit. And we've seen Matthew Lee Anderson uh, write on this on his his medium blog. And I'd urge urge people to check that out. Uh, Also, Gracie Olmstead at the American Conservative has has written. Uh, some, some pretty interesting stuff around the ethics uh, around this case. Uh, but, but I get stuck at the same place you do, Justin, which is um, c- certainly uh, uh, hospitals within it, it, it's, it's rights at a certain point to, to not provide a, additional, uh, additional care. Um, uh, again, he was, he was in the hospital for, for over a a year, uh, uh, for for much over a year, uh, but but to but to then take control over that child, uh, to to go to court and have a court basically say, as you said, Justin, that uh, the hospital has the best interests of this child at in mind and not uh, his parents. It, it does does lead us down a pretty dangerous. Uh, dangerous place. Uh, you know, the other interesting thing, and this is what Gracie touches on uh, in her article, is that, you know, a case like this uh, wouldn't have been possible, you know, 50 years ago or, or uh, a certain period ago. I mean, his life was being sustained uh, through through artificial artificial means. And so to think about uh, about life, uh, about the uh, who who grants it? What what does the right to life mean in a in a case where we have uh, technology that can extend people's life uh, beyond its sort of natural limit? I, I'm not raising these questions because I have answers. I just think that w- we as a society are going to have to wrestle with with uh, uh, with the sort of increase of you know biomedical technology uh, that will have us asking questions that we've never had to to ask as a society, especially in places like the UK, where you have a, a, a health system that is, uh, uh, there is a, a government system that, that does have, uh, sort of societal and government sort of, um, 
uh, 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 leverage points and sort of controls on it. And so uh, th- this case was just, you know, heartbreaking to see that the, the Pope uh, was sent uh, uh, was sent out several prayers for the family. The father met with Pope Francis uh, for, for 20 minutes in a private hearing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it was, it was an, an incredibly saddening kind of thing to see the world watch as, as this young boy, uh, fought for his life. It was, it played out slowly and, and I'll end with this for people like myself who see themselves on more of the progressive end on a lot of political issues. It's important that we speak out on issues like this where progressivism gets out of line. Because when we speak out on issues like this, we have a little more credibility in the public square when we want to make other arguments, right? Um, this is when, when, when conservatives talk about the tyranny of the state <laughs> right, right, or the right. state going out of bounds or outside of its authority and their fear of that, this is what they're talking about. This is exactly what they're talking about. And if you don't want to give credence to those fears, then you need to step up and say something when things like this are going on to make it clear that's not what I want. And I do understand where my side of the conversation can go too far. When you do that, it actually gives your other arguments uh, more strength because you have more credibility. But if we stand quiet and don't say anything when this happens, it's problematic. And if you think nothing like this or close to this is going on in the United States, I think you're sorely mistaken. You can look at parental rights and how they go back and forth with the state when it comes to education and what certain states like California, uh, Massachusetts, what parents are entitled to know when it comes to issues like gender identity and all those things. Uh, do they get to know the curriculum? Do they get to opt out of the curriculum? Do their ch- Does their child even have to come to them when they're feeling a certain way? Those aren't rights that everyone has, even in some places in the United States. And so for progressives who are Christians who want to have a intellectually honest conversation and want to have credibility with people outside of their uh, ideological space, you need to step up when things go too far. And that's what makes our public square better when people can actually stand up and say, no, 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 my side is going a little too far. So think about doing that. It will help our discourse altogether. That's great. We're going to take a quick break uh, and we'll be we'll be back soon. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast, and last week, even with uh, uh, North Korea news, even with everything that was going on uh, last week, at least for some of us, uh, I-, I venture to say uh, those of us who spend more time than we should on Twitter, which is not representative of the general public, uh, but last week was the week of Kanye. Uh, mm-hmm. Kanye tweeted a series of tweets uh, uh, expressing his support and love for President Trump. Uh, uh, Perhaps most notably this one, uh, he tweeted, you don't have to agree with Trump, but the mob can't make me not love him. We are both dragon energy. He is my brother. I love everyone. I don't agree with everyone. I don't agree with everything anyone does. That that's what makes us individuals, and we have the right to independent thought. Donald Trump uh, uh, tweeted, "Thank you, Kanye. Very cool." And there were there was just a whole series of tweets. Well, I, I'm 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 not going to walk through all all of this mess, but it did it did raise some really I, I think some questions that have been uh, you know bubbling up, uh, and, and that is you know in these uh, sort of uh, 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 Kanye was making a a, a a case that uh that he was the free thinker that he was sort of the independent thinker uh and that everyone else had just sort of been been duped by the mob uh it, this uh just and what I found to be most fascinating about it was uh, he was unfollowed Kanye was unfollowed by uh i believe over a million people including uh significant uh superstars <laughs> uh uh people uh, uh big name artists unfollowed him sort of to i guess send a send a message that uh these views were going to cost him uh and so to see all of this like peer pressure and 
you know, signaling happen uh, was was fascinating. And then just, of course, you know, how it overtook the news cycle. Just uh, this case was the clearest to me that the media hasn't learned much from 2016, uh, that with everything else going on, uh, that so much of the news coverage last week was was around, you know, some tweets by Kanye. Uh, but what do you think, Justin? Do you think do you think Kanye should be uh, should be thrown overboard? <laughs> I think Kanye should be placed in jail for the rest of his life. No, I'm just kidding. I, you know, I, honestly, your your response was perfect, and it was exactly my response. I laughed. I laughed because you have a rapper who was trolling everyone, and yeah. too many people fell for it. I mean, this is what Kanye does, like. How, how, this is what he does for publicity. He already told you that he just told us that he had a few albums coming out, one of his and others that he was producing from his label and all this other stuff. Kanye over and over has <laughs> trolled us, has, has done whatever he had to do to get publicity. And even if he was serious, I have no reason to right. take this seriously. And this is this is my problem. I mean, people are talking about this ruined my day, this ruined my week. I'm so mad. I mean, people, you could tell people were typing on their keyboards <laughs> real hard on Twitter at, at, at Kanye West. And I'm like, why? I mean, how does this shape or change or do anything to right. the political landscape? What is the consequence of Kanye coming out and saying uh, Trump is my brother? I love him. If you laugh it off and look the other way and go about your business. It would have been nothing. Who cares if Trump retweets it? Trump retweets a lot of stuff. It's not changing anybody's opinion for real. And anybody's opinion who it did change, their opinion will probably change again within the next week or two. This had no real consequence. And so for people to be pulling out their hair, freaking out and, you know, just just saying all type of crazy stuff like this changed the changed the game. And now the (laughs) midterms are up in the air and all this other stuff. Just just take a deep breath and, and laugh once in a while, man. Uh, a wise man once told me, well, not told me, but I heard a wise man said this wise man being show Baraka. He was on a Roland Martin show. He said, there's a, you know, you got to watch mixing your politics with entertainment. Uh, and I think this, this is proof of that. That doesn't mean that an entertainer can't be seriously involved in politics. But when you mix the two all the time, you don't know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. And this was an opportunity for us to laugh it off, go about our business and just move yeah. forward with a with a laugh because i had i don't I, I just don't see why this was substantive enough for everyone to react the way that they did if people want to unfollow him absolutely go go for it but to act like this is something that we should really be talking about in the public square when we have other serious policy issues going on is ridiculous and i do think the media to your point has some responsibility for that because this just was not worth yeah. all the I, conversation I just, you, you know the last thing i'll say on this is you know the thing that just hit me was uh if you would have told me you know 10 years ago that you know kanye west was gonna be you know getting in big trouble for an opinion of his and you know that that opinion was you know his kind of like support for a republican (laughs) you know that out of all the things i could have imagined kanye west doing that would have got him in trouble that you know him tweeting support for the president whoever that president is uh it was just uh uh it 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 showed how how much the sort of uh the conversation has moved it also uh it indicated how how seriously people are taking sort of some of this sort of boundary policing and sort of making sure that everyone's kept uh in in line in a way that I don't think is uh effectual I don't think it's realistic I think it actually incentivizes people to break outside of those and and then reap rewards for it but uh but yeah I mean I think we've I I don't know how much we should intellectually try and break this break this down <laughs> All right <laughs> Yeah, I, think I was just, I was just gonna on. say. <laughs> All right, so we'll uh, we'll take a quick break. We're gonna do a quick segment on a pretty interesting piece from Mitch Daniels, uh, actually uh, the former governor of uh, of Indiana and uh, president of Indiana University. Uh, that actually touches on something that Justin you said uh, just uh, a segment or two ago. 
so we'll be back after this break for a quick segment on Mitch Daniels, Washington Post piece. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And just to wrap up this week's episode, uh, we want to discuss this op-ed from Mitch Daniels. This isn't sort of the first op-ed he's, he's written, I, I believe, probably in one of our, you know, first six or eight episodes, Justin, we, we discussed another op-ed he, he had written. Uh, but this one is in the Washington Post with, with the headline, we won't know how foolish we look until a long time from now. And I just love this topic. I think it's really important. I think understanding this is what can undergird a return to uh, humility and civility in public discourse. Uh, uh, Justin, uh, you sent this over to me. Um, but what, what caught your eye? What caught your eye about it? Yeah, I was impressed by this article. And the thing that caught my eye really was the conversation about the fallacy of presentism. Um, uh, I think he did a very Mitch Daniels did a very good job of talking about presentism. Now, presentism is basically when the values, mores and conventions of the present day are used to judge almost always harshly and sanctimoniously our predecessors. So it's us looking back and saying, wow, they were just dumb. How could they think that way? That's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Will Durant, as it's written in the article, wrote of the tendency for humankind at each point of the modern era to imagine that history is a straight line upward leading uh, to the us of the current day. Uh, and Mitch, Mitch Daniel said that we seem especially vulnerable to this conceit these days. And basically he's saying, you know, for us to always look at history and think that we're getting everything right or that we're getting things, everything better than they did. It's just a false way to look at that. And I think we see a lot of that um, in modern day, um, in, in this modern day, especially with some of the progressivism. And even as somebody who considers themselves, again, to be somewhat progressive, the idea that history is always leading to this uh, perfected state where, you know, humanity will somehow be perfected and we're always getting better is just false. I mean, from a biblical standpoint, history is more cyclical where we gain things and we lose things. And just from a historical standpoint, that can't really be um, justified uh, when we put it in in the right view. Uh, And so I think it's it's a conversation that we need to have more often. Now, I do want us to avoid making this making this a relativist argument, too, uh, to say people should only be judged by their, you know, their moment in history. No, that's not that's not right either. People should be judged by a standard that is timeless. And here's the beauty of Christianity. It is a timeless standard that's applied to different days uh, and different ages. But the standard and those principles, those Christian principles never change. We have a tendency to think that we only gain knowledge and gain wisdom and gain compassion over time. But again, that can't stand up to biblical or historical scrutiny. Uh, Yes, we can gain things over time, but we can also lose wisdom. We can also lose compassion throughout the generations. There's certain wisdom that your grandparents had that you don't have right now and that you may never have. Uh, so the idea that we're always getting better and, and that we're always reaching to some type of perfection or utopia is something that should be very hard for Christians to believe. And even from a historical non-Christian perspective is really hard to prove in any yeah, significant I mean, way. The most, you know, the thing that encapsulates what, what Mitch, uh, what was, uh, talking about in this, in this piece was, you know, the, uh, the come on, it's 2018 uh, kind of tweets, you know, something crazy happens in the news. Right. Someone retweets it. Right. It's 2018. Shouldn't we be past this already? Why isn't this taken care of as if, you know, the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we're living in the year 2018 means that, uh, uh, it has some sort of magical influence on, on, uh, eradicating, uh, uh all kinds of problems. And, uh, you know, again, I, I just, uh, if we're able to keep in mind the fact that previous generations thought the same thing and thought that their actions were just as uh, right and justified and that history would look back on them with, uh, with, with, uh, with, 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 uh, you know, high esteem, uh, then that should hopefully, if we have a certain level of humility and recognition that we're not the best people that have ever lived, (laughs) we'll understand uh, that yes, we need to act 
Uh, now we have responsibility for the time in which we've lived, but to carry out that responsibility with some sense that we're, we're probably going to get some stuff wrong. And, and so, uh, especially when we get to politics to not treat each political battle, uh, as if it's, you know, this, uh, fight between good and evil and this, uh, dictating the, the future of, generations obviously politics is important that's why we do this podcast uh but we don't have to look back too far in history to see decisions that were made for one purpose and one intention actually leading to the absolute op opposite and having unintended consequences and and really the same people who made those decisions having to work for the rest of their lives to to undo some of the harm that was done we've seen that when it's come to war we've seen that when it has come to certain kinds of uh, criminal justice reforms that uh, and, and law enforcement reforms. Uh, and, and so uh, having uh, being able to reject presentism uh, is so important to being being able to have a, a healthy public discourse. Uh, Justin, do you have any any closing thoughts? Yeah, just think about some of the things that people from the past might look at us and say, whoa, that's that's a little crazy. I mean, we are a society that's dealing right. with a sex trade, right, right, right. a very serious sex trade that doesn't show any signs of flowing down. How does that happen in this sophisticated, enlightened generation? Something else is late term abortions. Would people see that as barbaric? How will people look at us in that regard? So it's also important for us to try to identify some of our blind spots and the places where rhetoric and narratives may be covering up atrocities. All right, folks. Well, uh, we covered uh, quite a bit in this uh, this episode. Uh, we went to North Korea. Uh, we ended up in Indiana, uh, and uh, the, the whole journey was was a was a good one. We'll be back next week. Uh, looking forward to being with you. Uh, uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Thank y'all. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove, tell me, can yeah. you it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.